Well, if you would, would you please take out your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, it's about three-fourths of the way back in your Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every Sunday. We have red ones in the seat uh, rack in front of you there. And if you want to pull one out, um, I think it's somewhere in the 700s. We're going to look at John chapter 12, and uh, verses 12 through 26. We're in a series called Encountering Christ. You can see up here on the banners, it says that. And again, I've mentioned this before. If you haven't already stopped up and seen the banner as it unfolds, I'm really thankful for our artists in our church that are continuing to follow each encounter. Um, again, we also have palm branches up here to remind us that it's Palm Sunday. Now, if you haven't been with us, this series of Encountering Christ, what we're doing in 2012 as a church family is we're making our way through John's gospel. That's where we're going to camp most of the year, except this summer for a couple months in Psalms. But we're making our way through John, and our whole goal is to not only read about encounters that people had with Christ, but we're hoping that in the process, as we study those, that we'll encounter Christ. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the zillionth time, but we will encounter Christ. And again, just precious thing, how God's been doing this. Now, what I want to tell you is we've been in chapter 4. Now we're going to jump ahead, eight chapters, because... We want to camp in John, but it's Palm Sunday. So we're going to look at the Palm Sunday account. And um, uh, one of the things that we've already talked about is that Palm Sunday was when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey where people went nuts over him because they had heard, if you haven't read the chapter before, it's John chapter 11 that talks about how he raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead four days. So the crowds are just, it's electric. And the Bible tells us that this crowd began to follow Jesus from Bethany, where Lazarus lived, all the way into Jerusalem. And uh, again, because it was a Passover, some historians think that there may have been as many as two and a half million people in the city that day. It's a lot of people, so it was just a setup for quite a scene, okay? Now, today, what I want to talk to you about on this Palm Sunday is expectations. Expectations. I, I remember when this word first came to mean something to me. Uh, I believe it was the first three months that I was married. <laughs> and uh, Trish and I had dated four and a half years. We knew each other's families pretty well. I mean, we were well acquainted, and uh, we had a good marriage then. I believe we have a good marriage today. The point is, is that it still didn't adequately prepare me for expectations. In fact, the first three months I can only describe as shocking. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, I went in, I thought I would, I'd done all the preparation, you know, the premarital counseling, all this stuff, but I just, every day, I found out that Trish had different expectations than I did for the littlest things, decisions, how I thought something was going to go, and underneath it all, what I started realizing is, no matter what I said at the altar, I secretly thought Trish existed to make me happy. I know, some of you women are going to hiss at me. I'm just saying that that was what, that was what I, I honestly, I, I thought, isn't marriage meant to make me happy? And I, honestly, over the years, I've met people that have said, I'm not happy. I'm bailing. And really, that, their expectations come out. And, um, you know, again, you think about it, expectations are tricky things for all of us to handle. In fact, if you're following along, let me give you a definition of expectations. 
expectations are what we suppose, look forward to, or look for. What we suppose is supposed to happen, look forward to, or look for. Another word could be, they can be what we imagine, what we dream, what we hope for. It's how we come into a situation. What are we looking for? What do we think is supposed to happen? What is important is our expectations a lot of times. And uh, again, part of what I want you to see on this Palm Sunday, if you're following along, is that on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes as the King of glory. On Palm Sunday, Jesus comes as the King of glory. It's an amazing thing. In fact, I, I'm on a roll. I made another typo out to the right there. And so I just need to ask you not to look up Luke 24. It'll highly confuse you. But if you look up Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, you'll see what I meant by the king of glory. Those verses say, lift up your heads, O you gates. You know, let the king of glory, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord, strong and mighty. And this idea of the king of glory was mentioned even in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes as the king of glory, but if you're following along, but the glory Jesus offers is not what everyone expects. It's not what they were looking for. It's not what they were looking forward to. And so there is this incredible clash of expectations on that Palm Sunday. What do you do with your expectations when they're different than someone else's or different than you thought they would be? I got a text this week from someone that I had mentioned they, they found out they had a diagnosis. It's going to be very difficult. And um, a friend just wrote back and said, uh, this is turning out different than we thought life was going to be. But we believe that God still has something in this for us. But they were wrestling because it isn't turning out the way it was supposed to be. Some of you have had a relationship, a marriage, a friendship, financial different things that your plans, your dreams, your career, they're not going the way they were supposed to go because of your expectations. What do you do in that situation? What do we do with our expectations? Because the people came into the city that day with Jesus with all kinds of expectations. And what I hope we'll see this morning is they actually, there were four different groups that day and uh, they all came with different expectations. There was the crowd itself, there were the religious leaders, sometimes called Pharisees. There were the disciples that were part of the crowd that day who had been following Jesus. And there were these people called the Greeks. We're going to look at their expectations. But what I hope we'll see today is that we'll see that Jesus wants to teach us how it's easier to take up a palm branch. It's easier to say, I believe in you, Jesus. And then later find out that our expectations of what we thought that relationship was going to be are different than we imagined. What do we do then? How do we, instead of just laying down cloaks or palm branches, how do we lay down our lives? How do we understand what Jesus has in mind, his expectations? And so I'm going to read through that passage in just a moment, talk about these four groups, and then talk about what it really means to encounter Jesus and his expectations. So let's pray, and then we'll do that. Now, God, before we take communion today, we pray you'd prepare our hearts. We pray you'd use this passage, but as we've been praying every week, we pray we'd encounter Christ. 
We pray that through that encounter, something might change in us, especially today, our expectations. Show us what to do with them, Lord. And I pray that, again, we'll see ourselves in this story and that also we'll see ourselves in your story. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let me read verses 12 through 26, and I'll make a few comments, and then we'll unpack this. The next day, and again, uh, these are some things that had happened just earlier uh, with Lazarus. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. That's a reference usually to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. When the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had, get, that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Notice the curiosity. Who is this guy? How in the world did he do that? Verse 19, so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip. And, uh, probably came to Philip, by the way, because Philip is a Greek name. Probably spoke Greek. So out of the 12 disciples, they spotted him, realized he might be a connection for them. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Look at these Palm Sunday expectations if you're following along in the notes. The first one I want you to see as far as expectations were the crowds. The crowds are expecting, they're looking for a conquering king. They're looking for a conquering king. In this passage, uh, they actually say some things like Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and then this incredible phrase, blessed is the king of Israel. Now the first two come from some passages in the Old Testament, but the last one John includes to show how they were interpreting this whole event. They saw Jesus as the king of Israel, and they thought that he would be the one that would conquer the Romans, and therefore they'd be able to get their lives back. They'd be able to get what they wanted out of life a lot more easily if he was the conquering king. And uh, John actually says that Zechariah 9.9 is why Jesus was actually riding on a donkey. He wasn't just playing at it. He was fulfilling scripture. Now, normally, a conquering king would come in on a horse. Usually after winning in battle or war, 
And so the whole city would celebrate. In fact, almost 200 years before, when a man named Judas Maccabees had actually defeated some other nations, the people welcomed Judas Maccabees by grabbing palm branches and beginning to shake them and beginning to cry out some of these exact same things. And so I'm sure in their collective national memory, they remembered this event and they thought, this is the next one. This is the one that's going to help us get out from underneath this oppression and rule. And they were saying all these different things. But instead of a horse, Jesus rides in on a donkey. And I'm sure that somewhat bewildered them. But still, they thought, it doesn't matter. This is still the guy. He's our guy. He's the conquering king. And sometimes it's real easy for us to want Jesus to conquer all kinds of things so that we don't have to go through hard stuff. Sometimes we want Jesus to take all our problems away, conquer those things so that we don't have to face them. Notice this, that they take palm branches and shout Hosanna, which means save now or save us. They take palm branches and they did something very similar. The crowds, their expectations are full. You're the man. You're the one that's going to help us do this. If you can raise Lazarus from the dead, Nothing's too difficult for you. You're the one that we have set our hopes on. The second group that I want you to see is the religious leaders. The religious leaders, sometimes called the Pharisees in this passage, are looking for a cooperative king. A cooperative king. You'll notice that they say in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. What do they mean by that? This is getting us nowhere. If you read the Gospels, and we've jumped over, I admit, but if you read through the Gospels, you'll see several times that because Jesus doesn't cooperate with their picture of a Messiah, they want to get rid of him. In part, as we learned a few weeks ago, because of envy and rivalry, but also he had taken their glory away. And now they wanted to get their glory back, and they knew the only way they could do that was to get rid of him. Have you ever noticed that in order to live for Christ, it's going to have to be his glory or my glory? You can't live for both. And uh, he, they found the same thing, and they made their choice. He wasn't cooperative. They wanted a cooperative king. And so they had made plans to kill him. But see, they had made plans to kill him, the Gospels tell us, after the feast, after the Passover, which brought all these crowds to Jerusalem. Why? Because then the crowds wouldn't have any opinion on that. They wouldn't turn against them. They could just do it quietly. And the Gospels tell us that after Lazarus was raised from the dead, because he was helping to create even more trouble for them, they were going to kill Lazarus too. Wow. They had expectations of a cooperative king, and Jesus wasn't going along. Third one that I want you to see is this group called the disciples, who we know better as you know the 12, the people that were following him. They've been with Jesus, as we saw when Steve taught on it from the very early part of John. So they've seen lots of stuff, and they already believe in him. But the Bible says in verse 16, they don't understand what's going on in this event at the time. It wouldn't be till after Jesus had died, risen again, and uh, ascended into heaven that they would understand this stuff with the help of the Holy Spirit. So if you're following along, the disciples are looking for a national king. They're looking for a national king. And what do I mean by this? Just like the crowds were crying out, blessed be the king of Israel, the king of Israel. In other words, that was their nation. And part of what they thought about Jesus is, is that he's come just for us. That's why you saw the struggle with the woman in Samaria. 
to believe that Jesus was interested in doing something outside their nation. But we've already seen, for God so loved the world, not just one nation, that he gave his only son. And we see that this struggle is still going on even after Jesus rose again. In Acts 1-6, the disciples come to him and said, Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Friends, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes it's easy to become only concerned about our nation. I'm so thankful to be an American. I'm grateful for all the privileges that come with living in this country with all of its great strengths and all of its flaws. But if we're not careful, we can actually begin to be more interested and more excited about being an American than being a Christian. And there may come a day when we may have to choose. But the question is, what are your expectations? Are your expectations is that Jesus will always protect our country and always just love our country Or do you have an understanding that God loves the whole world and that he wants to do something beyond just our nation? The disciples were still on the way on this one. They had different expectations, and Jesus was about to explode those. The Greeks is the next group. They're looking for a worldwide king. The Greeks are looking for a worldwide king. When they come to them, they say, we want to see Jesus. Now, normally, the people that would get access to Jesus most people would have thought were just Jewish people. These people are Gentile, which means non-Jewish person. And they were Greeks. They were people that spoke a different language. They weren't necessarily from the same religious group, but they were interested in Jesus. And John includes this so that we begin to see that what Jesus is going to do as the king of glory is going to be way more than just about Israel. It's going to be about the whole world. And already he has people that are interested in him from other nations. One of the things I love Sometimes that I've had the privileges by worshiping in other countries. And sometimes even in the United States where other countries are represented. I love the fact that Jesus came for every nation. And so the Greeks began to understand that and they're seeking him out. And they, all these groups have different expectations of Jesus. What are they looking for? What are they looking forward to? What do they suppose? What do they dream of? What do they want? What do they imagine? And Jesus understands that day on Palm Sunday that despite all the crowds, all the noise, all the praise, that actually it was the wrong expectation of him and he was going to disappoint most of them. Sometimes, as our church has been growing, I find myself so grateful to God for what I perceive by many people as a genuine interest in knowing Christ. But I know that actually sometimes it's possible to be part of a crowd just because it's the thing to do or because we're curious. And that doesn't necessarily mean we have the same expectations Jesus has for us. Mark chapter 7, verse 6, look at what it says. Jesus said these words one day. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Sometimes I've found that I might sing the right words. I might actually say, praise the Lord, or something like that. Lord, you're good. But underneath, my expectations still are is that the Lord exists to make me happy instead of the fact that the Lord exists to make me wholly his, completely his. And um, sometimes my expectations get all messed up. 
There's a turning point in this passage, and I've kind of highlighted it in the next section. The Greeks had it right. Their expectation was right. And it can be our expectation today, too. And you'll see that phrase, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Is that what you want? Is that what you're looking for? Is that the hunger of your heart? Or do you have a different expectation of why you're here on planet Earth? My dad was a pastor. I told you that many times. But because in his generation, when pastors were preaching, he told me that it wasn't uncommon in those days to stand behind a pulpit and there would be a plaque, sometimes just a three-by-five card, with these words written right there in the pulpit for every preacher to see. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Reminding every pastor that when they stood up, their job was not to meet people's expectations, but to preach Jesus Christ as he really is. Not necessarily the Jesus we expect him to be, want to try and manipulate and make him to be, but the Jesus that really is. And friends, this day, as I stand before you, I realize my responsibility is to preach Jesus in such a way that you might be able to see him, not me. To see who he really is, and not who you imagine him to be, but who he really is. And so Jesus, when these Greek people come to him and say, we want to see Jesus, you expect that the next thing will happen, he'll say, hey, come on in, we'll talk, and stuff like that. And maybe they did, but John says the very next thing he does is he says something, just like last week, we're shocked sometimes by how Jesus transitions, how he all of a sudden does something next. Would you read that in the second gray box? Let's read out loud what Jesus says when the Greeks come and say we want to see Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Boy, everyone wants to know, what's it going to look like when the Son of Man is glorified? And Jesus uses this phrase, the Son of Man. Even if you don't know a lot about the Bible, let me just tell you that in Daniel chapter 7, a prophecy is made. And Daniel had this vision of where all these kingdoms would be crushed, these great kingdoms that had, had you know, conquered the world for a while, but then they're all crushed by someone called a Son of Man. And so the Jewish people began to set their hopes on the Son of Man. And what they thought about the Son of Man is that he would come and crush all these other nations so that then they could be a glorified people, a glorified nation. He was the one who would glorify them and make them realize they were smart and made the right choice. But Jesus says, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what he does next is absolutely turn their expectations on their head. You know what Jesus means when he says glorified? He means crucified. He means crucified, buried, raised again, and ascended into heaven where he would send the Holy Spirit. And he talks about this phrase glorified, and glorified is mentioned twice in this passage in verse 16 and here in this verse as well that we just read. And the idea of glory, what does it look like? when Jesus would be glorified. I thought these crowds all were glorifying. He's saying, no, 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 no. None of that stuff was the kind of glory I'm seeking. Now the hour has come for me to be glorified. And if you're following along, Jesus says his time to be glorified has come. This must have perplexed the disciples a little bit. Way back when we studied the miracle where he turned the water into wine in Cana at the wedding, he told his mom when she said, they've, they've run out of wine, he says to her, my hour, my time has not yet come, Mom. And he doesn't mean I'm not going to do this miracle. He's just saying, just know, 
God has a timetable for me to be glorified, and my hour hasn't yet come. He said that again in chapter 7 and again in chapter 8. I've listed those out to the right. But now he says, it's come. What's come? He is about to be crucified. In a way, he's saying to the Greeks, do you want to see me? Do you want to know who I really am? Then you need to understand that I came to be lifted up and glorified on the cross. Everybody was going, whoa, 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 whoa. The cross is the most shameful place to die in our world at that time. They thought there's no way you can be, get any glory out of a cross because a cross is a shameful death, a humiliating death. Nobody gets glorified that way. Jesus says, God does. And then he gives this unbelievable picture. Some of you, it's springtime, and you can relate to this because you love being in the garden or planting things in your yard. And then in verse 24, he says this incredible thing. He says, I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he's saying, don't forget this. I tell you the truth. This is truer than true. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If you're following along in the notes, like a seed dying, giving away this life, the life here on earth, giving away this life leads to a greater life, is what Jesus is saying. That when you and I understand the simple mystery of a seed in our hand, a grain of wheat, he says, if you just keep it in your hand, and that's what a lot of us want to do with our expectations, if you just hold on to it, it will never be what it was made to be. And it will remain alone. And it's, it'll produce really nothing. But if you put it in the ground, and there in the ground it dies, watch what happens. It will produce many seeds. And what he's saying is, life comes through death. Life comes through death. Most of us go, no way. Life comes through getting your way. Life comes through having all your expectations met. Life comes through everything coming to my front door. Jesus goes, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. And if you're looking for that kind of glory, you'll miss me. Your expectations, you'll miss me. And that leads to this last part. You know, some of us would say, well, maybe he's just talking about himself as the seed. But he doesn't stop. He keeps talking. Some of us wish he wouldn't. Verse 25 says this, the man who loves his life will lose it. You hang on to your life. You'll be just like that grain of wheat. You'll lose it. It'll amount to nothing. But the man who hates his life, and this just means by comparison to his love for God, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Remember, he's a king. So if he's a king, and he's our king, we'll serve him. And here's what he says. He expects, if you're following along, whoever serves him to lay down their life to. This is what he expects. He says, all right, you guys have expectations for me. Let me tell you my expectation for you. Here it is. That whoever serves me will lay down their life just like I have, and you'll follow me. 
you'll be willing to take the same path because you understand the same truth, that to live for yourself and your expectations is not what you think it is. It will not turn out the way. You are setting yourself up for ultimate disappointment. Friends, it's getting close to graduation time. And almost every time I've ever gone to a graduation event, the speaker usually stands up and says, young people, kids, believe in your dreams. Go after your dreams. Do anything your heart desires. And I just want to stand up and say, no! You know why? Not because it's wrong to dream. It is not. But because I've discovered that most of my dreams are too small. That most of my dreams for my life were wrong. That most of my expectations were so self-centered. Someone once said that a person who's full of themselves makes a very small package. Jesus says, look, when you have all these expectations, will you let me change them? Will you lay down your expectations in order to take up my expectations? Because my expectations for you, while they may be initially unattractive in the eyes of the world, they actually lead to something that's so much greater. And friends, this is on this Palm Sunday, Jesus modeled what he's talking about. And he says, who will follow me? Who wants the glory that only my Father can give you? Follow me. Lay down your life. Stop holding on to your expectations. No wonder you're disappointed. Take up mine. Oh, my goodness. I think about some of the things that we've learned about this over the years as a church. And I'm so thankful that Jesus calls us. He says, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world? If you got all the world but you lost your soul, would it be a good deal? Jesus says, no way. Lay down your life and follow me. And so as we think about that this morning, some of you know that my sister-in-law, Cindy, was related uh, to Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, and their sons' names are Elliot and Nate, named after the five men that were killed by the Alk Indians in 1956 because as missionaries, they took the good news of Jesus and his cross to these headhunters, and they were killed. After they were killed, these are just young men, all of them were very sharp. Their wives and Jim Elliott's sister, Nate Sate's sister, went in and brought the good news to the Alka tribe, and they were open to women. And they heard the good news of Jesus, and many of them came to trust Christ and later told more details of how they had mistakenly, for the wrong reasons, wrong expectations, killed their family members, but they came to Christ. Before Jim Elliott, he knew the danger. Before he did, he wrote these words, and I want you to see them today because it's April Fool's. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But you know what Jesus says? He or she is a fool who tries to hold on to what they cannot keep to gain what they will lose. And you and I have a choice on this Palm Sunday who we're going to worship. What kind of king do you want Jesus to be? The one he is or the one you imagine to be, the one you make him to be? It's a struggle for all of us, isn't it? And yet when you and I 
begin to lay our lives down, tremendous things can happen. For the last two years, we've been saying we believe God is calling us as a church to declare war on shallow Christianity, beginning with ourselves. You want a definition of shallow Christianity? Unsurrendered Christianity. There is a version of Christianity that's being taught nowadays that says, you do not have to lay down your life to follow Jesus. All you have to do is say, Jesus, come into my heart and take me to heaven. And friends, the only problem with that is if Jesus comes into your heart and he's a king who wants to take over, what does that mean? He wants to come in and take over. He wants to rule our lives. He wants to change our expectations. Have you let him do that? And so what does it mean to lay down our life? I want to just mention two. There's two ways you can lay down your life. The first is for the first time ever. Some of you, you know that Jesus has been knocking on the heart, the door of your heart and saying, will you let me take your expectations and make them mine? Will you lay down your life? Will you give the rest of your earthly life as precious as it is to you? And will you trust me with it? Will you surrender your life to me? And when you and I begin to do that by faith, we believe that Jesus surrendered his life for us, that he paid the penalty of our sin and our sinfulness. And therefore, we can be cleansed, we can be forgiven, but also he can now come live inside our lives. Have you done that? Have you ever called on the name of the Lord and asked him to save you so that you can give your life to him? That's the first way to lay down your life. The second way is if you've already done that, is to do it daily. We just recently had some people baptized. That was a good moment. They laid their life down in baptism. But they're going to find out, as you and I have found out if you're Christians, is it still boils down to a daily choice. Will I lay my life down today? Will I be humble? Because the way you and I glorify Jesus is not by going, hey, yeah, yeah, singing all these songs and stuff like that, while our heart is still unsurrendered. The way you and I glorify Jesus is to humbly let him lead us in every area of our life, money, relationships, time, work, school, whatever it might be. And when you and I begin to do that, it changes stuff. Yesterday morning, Trish and I, I got her this running watch, and so I was trying to help her learn how to use it, and uh, evidently my way of teaching her how to use the watch wasn't helping. <laughs> and she said to me, she said, Jeff, sometimes you just get in leadership mode. And when you talk to me like that, it just gets me all nervous and uptight. And I remember thinking to myself, well, my expectation is that my leadership mode would bless you. <laughs> I mean, it blesses me. <laughs> but that moment, the Lord showed me, will you lay down your life for your wife and humble yourself and learn from what she's saying because I'm refining you through her. She's pointing out something you need to pay attention to. Man, that was a moment of truth. Paul says, I die daily. You and I need to too. We lay down our life one hour, one day at a time for the rest of our life. So as we come to this last part, I want to just ask you if you'd be willing to be a fool for Christ. I'm asking if, will I lay down my expectations and take up his is the question here. Will I lay down my expectations and take up his? And I know if you're like most of us, you're thinking, what if I do that? What if I do that? I'm going to lose more than I gain. I'm going to be, an, I'll look like an idiot. I'll be a fool. It just can't possibly be a good idea. 
to lay down my life and surrender the rest of my earthly life to Jesus. Could it? But again, Jesus, one day, his disciples came to him and said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And in a way, it was like they were saying, were we stupid to do that? Look at what Jesus says in Mark 10. He says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. In a way, Jesus was saying, you're not crazy to lay down your life for me no matter what somebody else says. If your expectations are to have yourself glorified in this world, lay them down and let live for my glory because I'll share it with you and it'll be way better than the glory you could ever seek for yourself, which is so temporary and fleeting. I've told it often, I'll tell it again. There was a man in a church who was a businessman, very successful guy in terms of business, and one day he asked the pastor there at a church in Chicago if he could meet with him. And this pastor thought, boy, I hope nothing's wrong because this guy's just a real player in our church. And so they got together for lunch and he says, your family okay? He says, my family's doing good. He says, the work going okay? He says, work's going fine. He said, well, what did you want to meet about? He says, well, I don't expect you to know this, but he said, um, for the last, you know, five or eight years, I've been giving some very large gifts to the church and to other ministries because a few years back when I realized that I could retire at a very early age, the Lord spoke to my heart and asked me if I would give my life to him and all that I have and let it be used for the kingdom of God. So I decided to keep working, and I've tried to live more simply and give as much as I can away to put it into play that it might help the kingdom of God advance in the world. And he said, when I did that, my accountant looked at me and said, you're crazy. He said, my partners began to understand some of this, even though I was doing it quietly, and they said, you're crazy. We wouldn't keep working. He said, sometimes even my family looks at me and wonders, are we crazy? He said, so from time to time, I need a trusted Christian leader to just sit across the table from me and remind me I'm not crazy. I just need someone to tell me that I'm not crazy. Can I just tell you if you're considering laying down your life for Jesus Christ for the rest of your earthly life and you're ready to live for his expectations for you, you are not crazy. The James Project that we're talking about these days came about because a couple who could retire and coast saw an opportunity to build into widows and orphans. Amigos in Cristo in Juarez, Mexico, exists because a guy got to a halftime in his life and he understood that he could use the rest of his life to serve the Lord more than just serve himself. And by these things, Jesus is glorified. And when you and I do little things in our homes, little things in our workplace, little things in our school that are all to serve Jesus Christ. He is glorified, and we are not crazy. And so, friends, can you imagine what would happen if we roll out of here today and we humbly say, take my life, Lord. Show me how to live like you want me to live and glorify yourself through everything I do, small or great. Wow, what would happen? He would be glorified as the King of glory. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we come to the communion table, I pray that it'll be a time for us 
when we'll actually consider whether or not we're surrendered to you this day, even if we've said we were surrendered in the past. Point out anything that's keeping us from laying our lives down for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.